everybody, and welcome to an episode of Impactful Conversations, a platform to educate and inspire. My name is Tafad Zandlovu, and thank you for tuning in for the show. On this show, I interview and speak to individuals who are making a difference in their world, individuals who have a different way of thinking and are forming as leaders in their respective fields. I hope that you enjoy the episode, and I'd love to hear some of your feedback after listening to the episode, either by writing us a review or by heading over to the website, impactfulconversations.co.za, and heading over to the Contact Us section. Anyway, wherever you're listening to this, I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Good day, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of Impactful Conversations, a platform to educate and inspire. I am thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Adriana Murray. Um, she's the founder of Proudly Human, and she's pioneering new frontiers in research and technology for a resilient future um, on Earth, Mars, and beyond. Um, she actually recently visited the Antarctic interior and the Oman Desert on location scouts uh, for the Proudly Human Offworld project, which we'll talk about in a bit as well. Um, she's the director of the Foundation for Space Development, um, and she is also a member of the South African Ministerial Task Team um, on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, also faculty at Singularity University and Duke Corporate Education and an astronaut candidate for the Mars One project. So she is out of this world and uh, a superstar. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good, Tafata. Thanks so much for having me this afternoon. It's great to be here with you. and. Um, I, I'm thrilled that we that we that we have you on the show today. I know we've we've been organizing this for for the better part of the past couple of weeks. So I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, typically, how we start the episode is we we want to get to know you a little bit better. Um, lots of people obviously know you um, and the work that you do. Um, but you know, tell us a little bit about you know where you're from. Um, what did you study and what are you passionate about? So I'm, I'm from South Africa. Um, I've lived in a number of different parts. Grew up mostly in Peter Maritzburg. Um, moved to Cape Town um, for my undergrad. Um, did my master's and PhD out of UKZN in collaboration with Singapore University. Um, and yeah, I'm currently in the, in the Western Cape and Sakya for the <laughs> present time being. Um, yeah, working on projects for, for Proudly Human. Um, yeah, so I consider myself a passionate learner in general. I've, I've done a bit of science in my time, but I'm a bit, uh, uh, I'm a bit resistant to calling myself a scientist because I feel like uh, I'm, uh, I like to think scientifically, but I also uh, approach things in creative ways. So, yeah, I'm passionate about learning. I think that's for sure and uh, exploring. <laughs> awesome. awesome. I think we, we, we're going to dive, we're going to firstly, I think, you know, dive into to your studies, as, as you mentioned. Um, I really want to talk about your, your learning uh, journey. Um, so tell me firstly, what I, what I want to know is why, why study theoretical physics? So actually at the time, um, when I was uh, finishing up with matric and deciding what to study, I applied to study jazz. But since amongst all the subjects I did at school, I did nine subjects at school, I didn't do music and they wouldn't let me in unless I did another year. 
So I said, okay, fine, let me study something that's not going to leave me bored <laughs> because uh, a lot of my time in school was felt, I have to admit, feeling bored, like I could have finished up a lot quickly, <laughs> more quickly. So I thought, what is like literally the thing that's that's going to challenge me and uh, be the really worth my time for going back from school into a desk and a chair scenario? <laughs> so I thought physics and um, I have had the, the dream of being an astronaut um since about standard five standard six so we call that grade grade eight nowadays i had quite firmly um intended on becoming an astronaut so i'm not sure how the jazz combination would have worked out for me so perhaps that was a good twist of fate um that i continued music on the side but um did theoretical physics hoping really to be engaged in a way that i hadn't really felt that i was um at school mm. Mm. So, opens a lot of doors um, into various fields so that was another consideration. Mm. So you also have a, a PhD in, in quantum biology if I'm if I'm correct um, you know so tell me a little bit about that journey to to quantum biology and and if it is a passion of yours you know um, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah so I did theoretical physics um, with the intention of, of somehow going on to do uh, aeronautical something or other to eventually uh, explore space, which has really been a lifelong um, dream. Uh, then I became really fascinated with quantum physics. So this, uh, I, I wasn't um, there every day of lectures, let me admit. Um, I, I, had a, I had a job at Cool Runnings um, down in Ob, so I often woke up a bit late for the first lectures. <laughs> so anyway, one of the days I actually did go and ask a question to the lecturer after class, um, which I seldom did. And this, this was a question and an answer and a little discussion that we had that has stayed with me for a long time. And I said, how can it be that... Uh, you cannot measure something without disturbing it, because this is like the fundamental tenet of quantum physics that to, to, to observe something is to interact with it in some way. And he said, well, if we're going to imagine a system that we never interact with, then this system is somehow not part of reality, is it? If no one has ever or will ever interact with a system, then this is a philosophical construct. So this, this Q&A session with the lecturer really stuck with me and made me fascinated about this, this quantum world whereby the observer, the scientist, is intrinsically part of the system that they are studying. This gave me the sense that I can really be part of science, that I can really contribute something um, through my presence. You know, a human presence being a part of the experiment was an important moment for me. So I continued with quantum physics, fascinated by the philosophy of it, uh, the, um, the contradictions that emerge from the mathematical theory and so on, many still unresolved. Um, but then another um, great moment in my studies was when a visiting um, a student came and gave us a talk on quantum biology. And now mm. I thought, finally, not only can I play a role as the observer in an experiment, but now I can actually study a system that I'm familiar with. Because, of course, in physics, you're studying things like uh, electrons or, or atoms, things that you don't see. Now, suddenly, I thought, oh, I can apply the knowledge that I've learned in mathematics to photosynthesis to uh, something we're all very familiar with from uh, childhood, you know, grass or leaves and bacteria, algae, all of those systems actually have a highly robust and efficient way of living and absorbing sunlight. So, so I was attracted by quantum biology because of the tangible nature, finally, of the system that we would study. Um, so I yeah, studied uh, photosynthesis in my quantum biology PhD. And then this led me to, to the question that actually brought me back to space, which is, if photosynthesis is the sort of earliest living process that we know of to have emerged on Earth, 
It's the sort of bacterial photosynthesis is probably the simplest living process that we can study from the perspective of physics. What came before that is the kind of natural question. Is there a simpler system or what are the precursors to that? And that, of course, is like asking the age-old question, what is life? Where did it come from? Can it emerge in other environments besides Earth? How did it, evolve? Uh, of course, it evolved here on Earth? So how did that happen? But more interestingly, can that happen elsewhere? And that led me back to then a full circle back to my dream of exploring beyond Earth because that's the natural next step when you start asking these kind of questions. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating, right? Because that sort of desire to, to go to space is something that came through um, you know, in, in, in grade eight, as it were. Um, but I, what I love is that it, it sort of carried its, its thread through all the way through your studies. Obviously, I, I'm not so sure how, you know, that would have gone with, with studying jazz, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 but um, in any case, it, it, the, the fact that that passion sort of carries you through is, is something which I find really fascinating. Now, I know you are currently doing a PhD um, in economics, as I understand it, um, and particularly in team dynamics and, uh, you know, it, team dynamics specifically in extreme environments. Um, but where does this sort of tie in with that, that passion um, and, and that dream? Where is that sort of thread coming through? So I think uh, the longer you, you study for, often the less employable you become um, uh, in a practical sense, but uh, also in a literal sense, you know, the longer you spend studying a very specific topic like, uh, you know, the reaction center in the photosynthetic units of purple bacteria, for example, um, you know, what use would this be to a community on Mars is obviously my question, trying to make myself a... The, the world's top candidates and a natural choice for, for being on the first team that goes to Mars. So this is kind of my goal. Um, so then I realized, yes, the training that I've done in the physics is, of course, not to waste the mathematical capability, the coding capability, but more importantly, the mindset, the love of problem solving, the capability to solve problems. Um, this is all, all well and good. Um, but in a practical sense, you know, what are my skills? And of course, if you're a surgeon, um, if you're a psychologist, you know, these are skills that are always going to be practical wherever you go, if there are people around. Um, quantum biology, you know, you can justify it. But on the other hand, I thought I need to get some training in uh, the, other, the other side of the more social sort of side of the science that will be uh, implemented and research done uh, on Mars. So, how do you put together a team? Of course, you need a set of capabilities in order to maintain the equipment, to perform medical uh, treatments to each other, etc. But beyond that, um, through data, through uh, iterating certain experiments, can you come up with an understanding of how to put a team together? Um, how do people respond in extreme conditions? Um, what kind of technology do you need to support a team in extreme conditions? Um, and not only extreme conditions, let's cl clarify that, resource-constrained environments. Mm. So not only with extreme, but resources are minimal and every kind of system has to be optimized, including the team. So that's the, the kind of thinking around that. Um, and it's just another part of the process of upskilling myself to, as I said, become the most qualified person to, to go to Mars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, 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 I'm fascinated by your... Your journey through education, I, I really am. I I want to ask you what what inspires you to keep learning. 
right? What? How do you sort of keep that um, open mind, as it were, to say, actually, you know what? Let me continue through my pursuit of of studying. What actually inspires you to to just carry on learning? Well, I think I, I think I just love it, and I don't know if people are born with that love or whether maybe I have to thank my parents for always encouraging me to ask questions rather than uh, telling me to stop asking so many questions, um, which may be the case, especially in the lockdown with a lot of uh, kids who ask a lot of questions. So yeah, I have to be grateful for my parents, um, not from a scientific background, but very much invested in education, um, who would always give me books or take me to the library or even the university library. This is obviously before Google was at everybody's fingertips back in the 80s and 90s. Um, so I've always been curious or always been asking why, 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 why for everything. And I think this has not been a, a childish obsession. This is a lifelong activity of mine, which is questioning the status quo. So mm. on the other hand, I think the, the thing that I love about doing research is that um, on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't really give ourselves the time to deep dive into a topic as much as we would like. So sometimes the rigor and the pressures of an academic program are just what you need to push yourself that further deeper into the problem to, to really come to a, a deeper understanding. You know, people mm -hmm. say they love quantum physics and they read a few articles, but if you register at a university program to do a degree, you will be forced to go in deeper than you would have casually done on Saturdays. Um, so this is the, the dual reason that I guess I, I enjoy the rigor of academia, but also the opportunity to be creative and ask why for every everything you want. That's <laughs> encouraged. Uh, that's a really that's an excellent characteristic, right? I think it 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 really is something that I think will and and has I'm sure and and I'm sure you felt that it has kept you and stood you in in good stead. Um, all right, so we we got off to a bit of a fast start. Let's let's slow it down a little bit. Uh, let's 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 get to know you a little bit better. I, I want to understand currently right now, and in, in, in uh, we we at time of recording, um, you're you're in the Western Cape, South Africa is, um, and I'm actually up in Johannesburg at the moment, and so we're obviously both in South Africa, and we we currently in uh, in level four, um, or level three actually, level four, level three. <laughs> advanced advanced level four advanced level three um lockdown um and what i want to understand from you is um currently as obviously in south africa we're under lockdown i want to understand you know what's your current daily routine um and you know what's a typical day um in your life so in the uh, towards the beginning of this year i left cape town kind of moved out of cape town to um, closer to the Titicama part of the Western Cape. Um, my family is there and so on. Um, and we started building a cabin in the valley um, of an inaccessible kind of region of the Titicama forest. So then uh, the pandemic sort of became a reality also in South Africa. And then it became clear that lockdown was imminent. So in the couple of weeks before lockdown, I think everyone was scrambling um, to prepare themselves for whatever the future may hold. For us, this entailed going to build it and making sure we built, bought all the supplies that we needed to finish building our cabin, um, because uh, this is where we would have to live during the lockdown. So it was a, a necessity that we finished up. So we spent about 300 hours um, building this cabin, uh, and we had to carry the stuff like a kilometer down a 200-meter drop um, down into a valley next to a river. 
So we had a source of water, the Clean River, which was uh, good. Uh, and everything else we had to build from scratch. So cement, so wooden poles, uh, a deck, and then we put on like corrugated sheets for half of the wall, plastic for the top. You can check this all out on the Proud Human YouTube channel if you're curious. The building of the cabin is there. Um, so we put together a, a cabin from materials from the local hardware store. Took us about 300 hours. Um, cost us about 25,000 Rand for materials. Um, we tried to do it as cheaply as possible. Uh, some of the stuff was then secondhand when the building <laughs> shop was closed during lockdown. And we had to go take stuff off uh, nearby discarded uh, uh, areas. Um, yeah, so it was tough. And I mean, this is a reality the whole time in my mind that many South Africans are living with. And it's not just a project that they're involved in. This is this is their life that they're involved in. So this was a very interesting psychological exercise, I think, to see what it would be to build a house from scratch in a place with no infrastructure, um, digging the pit toilets, um, putting up the rainwater tank. Um, trying to find a place where you can get mobile signal by climbing up a tree and placing various devices in a tree, not being able to really engage in video. I mean, everybody uh, happily went online during the lockdown, but for people who are, don't have, you know, <laughs> broadband, uh, whatever, Wi-Fi available, uncapped at their house, this means mobile data, which is expensive, difficult yeah. to access in some parts of the country. Um, our food we didn't grow, which would be the next step because it was coming onto winter um, and the sun didn't reach down in the valley very well. But power, water, food and communication systems are the priorities for setting up a, a human habitat, whatever planet you're on, including in the valley in Tsukama. So these are the challenges we had to overcome physically. Um, mm. uh, and it's a, a beautiful little cabin. We're looking forward to visiting in summer because it's quite chilly down there. We lived there for two and a half months washing our clothes in the river, um, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, um, as you can see now, I'm, I'm not in the cabin in the forest. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I had to go and do some uh, stuff in Cape Town, so I'm now outside Cape Town. Yeah. Okay, okay. Now that's really, I mean, that's really awesome. I was about to say that like, like that, the wall behind you looks like, I was like, <laughs> oh, like you, you guys did a really good paint job. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, Tell me a little bit. So, you know, are you a, a morning or an evening person? Are you the, the type who sort of, you know, and I, I'd actually like to, to think, you know, in that in that cabin in the valley, you know, were you the type who who wakes up really early or um, are you the type who sort of likes to sleep in or are you a bit of both morning, evening person? Um, I think everybody knows me would agree. I'm not, not a morning person. <laughs> I can be. I can be when necessary. Um, no, but I think I enjoy the, the peacefulness of the evenings and the nighttime. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I, I like winter because when the sun's coming up at 7.20, I feel great that I can wake up at sunrise. <laughs> Just. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, what do you what do you miss most about life pre-sort of pandemic, um, pre-COVID-19? Has your sort of life changed a lot um, since then? And if so, you know, what do you miss most about life before then? So I think that's a good question. I think it's all about mindset, actually. So I'd prefer not mm. to say I miss anything, but rather I'm embracing this new lifestyle. And uh, for someone who wants to move to another planet, I think uh, being flexible under unforeseen circumstances is definitely a requirement. So okay. I've had a, quite a major life shift since last year because I think I counted uh, – 
over half a million kilometers that I traveled last year. So that's like 48 intercontinental flights of 12,000 kilometers each, 48 of those. So anyway, I traveled uh, like a mad person last year from place to place almost constantly, including Antarctica. So that's all continents now that I've given a, a presentation on uh, my ambitions for getting to Mars and how we're going to get there and so on. So yeah, staying in one place has been a, a real 180 degree shift from, from last year. But a welcome one, I think, um, and the opportunity to say, spend time with family. Yes, I have been. Um, <laughs> and uh, an opportunity to stay in one place and reflect and rest um, after the very hectic uh, travel schedule last year has been great. But mm. uh, good uh, to take off the Antarctica visit while that was still possible last year. Also, the Oman Desert that I went to earlier this year. Um, put me in really good stead to now reflect and plan the next the next phases for for myself and for proudly human. Awesome, that's that's. I love I love your your attitude towards that, and I think you're quite right that you know remaining flexible and agile is, is absolutely critical. Now let's let's talk about proudly human, right? Um, you know, so I want you to to tell us a little bit about the journey in terms of what inspired you to start it. Um, as well as, you know, what what does Proudly Human stand for? Um, for anybody who's listening or watching the show, um, yeah, what does it stand for and what's its purpose? Thanks. So um, the name Proudly Human had a funny beginning that kind of stuck in my mind. So I was in Chicago at an astrobiology conference and doing a small interview. And I said at the end, I'm Adriana Moret and I'm Proudly Human. And the Americans were like, excuse me, did you say partly human? And I was like, no, no, proudly human, proudly human. <laughs> and then it really stuck. That was back in 20, 2016, was it? So then it really stuck. So I said, no, this is something I actually want to emphasize. And can you believe it? I was actually criticized at one point during one of my talks for, for saying proudly human. Someone uh, objected to the, the notion that we should have any sense of pride given the current state of our society and our planet and our environment. And while I agree that we have uh, certainly probably the most uh, challenging, we are in the most challenging scenario, arguably, that humanity has ever faced. Um, so there is a lot that we are, uh, we should not be proud of, I agree. However, if we are to go forward and believe that there is a, a positive future for, for all humans, um, we have to think back to all of our ancestors, the whole lineage of, of events and people that have led to us being here. I think if we don't look back uh, on our ancestors and everything they've done to get us to this point with, with a sense of pride, then we are doing a disservice to all of the people who have come before us that have um, allowed us to be in the position we are in now. Also for future generations, you know, if we don't have a sense of pride in, in who we are and where we are going, then we have done a disservice to future generations. So we have to re-inculcate that sense of pride, you know, particularly in the South African context. There's there's a lot of uh, anxiety about the present and the future, and there's a lot of anger about the past, and these are all justifiable emotions. But I think we have to consciously actually re-inculcate that sense of pride and where we come from and where we're going if we yeah. are to justify our presence on this planet at all. So yeah. proudly human is then a very broad um, state of mind. It's a movement. Um, it's uh, an attitude. Um, and uh, also the, the name of the program with which we are trying to um, develop some necessary parts of the project to get humans to Mars. So so the way I see it, this could end up being quite a quite a South African driven project because globally 
we have one individual actually who is seriously working towards building a transport system to getting humans to Mars, and that's Elon Musk. Mm. So in 2002, he established SpaceX with the goal of making humans multiplanetary. In 2016, I was in Mexico at the International Astronautical Congress where Elon Musk talked to around 5,000 people in the auditorium um, on SpaceX's plans to make humans multiplanetary. This was the first announcement globally. And being in the audience, this really, you know, was a turning point in my life where I realized this, this is this is happening. Um, Elon Musk is going to do it. He's going to build a transport system. So let's assume that uh, this is going to be achieved. I think the milestone of the first commercial company being SpaceX to launch crew to the space station at the end of May during the lockdown is a fantastic uh, milestone towards launching crew to Mars. And if we want to wait, watch SpaceX 2022, they plan to land cargo on the surface of Mars, which is the last piece um, of the of the testing of the transport system, basically before crew will be launched. So, if uh, if all goes to plan, launching crew to Mars before 2030 is not at all unrealistic. Um, but let's say that part of the let's say that part is sorted. What happens when you get there? So that's where proudly human steps in, and we say. We don't need to wait to get to Mars in order to develop the knowledge and the technology and the teams in order to, to not only survive, but uh, develop community spirits and uh, thrive on the surface of Mars. There are plenty of scenarios on Earth um, where we can begin developing this kind of uh, knowledge and capability. And mm. here is the parallel goal that Proudly Human works on to advance our society by understanding what it is to live on more than one planet. But simultaneously, developing systems whereby communities can live uh, in a way that makes us feel proud here on Earth, even in extreme conditions. And when we look at the conditions on the surface of Mars, we see many people on Earth living in extremely harsh conditions. Okay, they can breathe the air, but is that air clean? Perhaps they have uh, water, maybe not nearby, but maybe a few kilometers away, but is this water clean, you know? Are the, is the food that they're eating nutritious? Are they able to access power? Are they able to access communication systems? These are the basic requirements for any human community on any planet. And I think um, the goal of getting this right on Mars automatically means that we no longer have an excuse on Earth for poverty. Um, so by aiming for the stars or for Mars in this in this case, um, we immediately build a whole lot of uh, knowledge and capabilities uh, in order to solve a lot of our challenges here on Earth. And I think the space industry has um, been known for for doing that in the past by, by trying to work towards a very difficult goal. Um, a lot of intermediate goals become uh, surmountable. Mm. And so... We we actually had you know one of a question from from one of our our listeners um who said you know a direct quote um please ask Dr Mary if, if we will ever find any form of life beyond our planet in the next twenty years um yeah how how do you feel about that I'm I'm, I'm quite curious so that almost takes me back to my research and I was a postdoc after my PhD looking at the origins of life and in particular, the detection of things like amino acids and nucleobases, so the building blocks of life which have been detected in space. Mm. So somewhere in between these building blocks and all the living systems we see on Earth, something happens in between, right? And that's what we're trying to figure out what that looks like, how mm. it did life originate. Um, but the calculations are massive, and even if we harnessed all of the supercomputers in the world, some of the calculations that we'd like to be able to do would not be possible. So yeah. I realized I need a quantum computer. 
and I realize I don't know when the quantum computer is going to be available. Actually, it seems easier and quicker to just go to Mars directly and to look for evidence of life because what we find on Mars may be that missing link in the puzzle from building blocks of life to life in terms of simpler systems, in terms of some relatives to bacteria on Earth, perhaps uh, ancestors of, of life on Earth. These are all options for the kind of things we might find on Mars. So in the end, I think it's going to be quicker uh, just to get there in person and go look around for evidence of life. Um, and we have, interestingly, this week, the Perseverance rover successfully launched from Earth to Mars. And that means there are three missions en route, the UAE HOPE mission, the Chinese Tianwen-1, and the Perseverance rover all en route to Mars. And the Perseverance rover in particular is looking for evidence of life. So watch the space in terms of what the rover um, comes up with. But uh, infinitely more capable will be a team of people living on the surface of Mars are able to analyze samples and yeah. perhaps answer the question in the next 20 years. Mm. I think it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. I think there's a lot of, lot of excellent work happening in that field. Um, and a lot of technological advances, which can also, you know, in turn help us here on Earth as well. Um, you know, some of the technologies and the the processes which are developed, I think, can can also be implemented here. Tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the Offworld project. Um, you know, let's just actually dive into it. So I want to get a sense of, you know, what's it all about? Um, and particularly, I would like to to focus on the point that you mentioned slightly earlier about the sort of simultaneous approach of, okay, can can we create a sustainable life um, on an, on another planet, in this case Mars, but simultaneously, can we enhance the lives of people on Earth? Um, you know, that sort of dual approach of actually, you know, we realizing the basic building blocks of life, as you mentioned earlier, that, you know, you, you experienced firsthand um, in the cabin down in the valley, right? Um, but how do we sort of, so a bit about off-world, first of all, um, but also a little bit about the simultaneous approach as well. Yeah, I mean, what what uh, was brought to my mind now when you said that as I was giving a talk um, at uh, some schools outside Cape Town and one of the students asked, will you have inside toilets on Mars? And, you know, kids always ask, how do you go to the toilet in space and stuff like that? But then I realized there was another nuance to this question, which is like, Will the facilities on Mars be better than the ones that we are experiencing here on Earth right now? And then this question kind of broke my heart, you know, to think that this is probably going to be true, that everybody says, oh, it's such a risk, it's such a dangerous expedition to go to Mars, but the reality is that the people there may enjoy better living conditions than many people here on Earth. And mm. if we can get it right to create conditions that are livable and enjoyable even on the surface of Mars, then it is and never has been acceptable in terms of the the conditions of poverty in which so many people live here on earth so mm. why have we not solved these problems i don't know why but um certainly i hope to contribute to getting some momentum and some speed around developing more resource efficient ways of living for communities through the ambitions of, of building this on mars but also to benefit people on earth so the the off-world uh, lockdown as we've called it cabin in the valley was like iteration zero of what kind of systems can you put in place given given some environment and given some resources? How can you build a, a livable habitat? So iteration two um, will be at the at the Cape Town Science Center, 
So we've got a habitat there. We're going to put up an agri system in a perspex kind of shipping container that can enjoy sunlight. Um, we'll have our water coming from atmospheric water extractors. We'll have a wastewater management system that cycles the water through through the agri system and also for other purposes like kids coming to wash their hands. So important nowadays at the at the exhibition. So this is an installation. It's kind of a, an artwork in terms of giving a perspective on what a habitat on Mars might look like, but it's also functional and gives us a, a way to test um, just how resource efficient can we be in terms of water consumption to grow a certain amount of food, for example, how much solar power can we get out to power these systems? Do we need a wind turbine and things like that? Um, the next iterations will be more serious, where we go to more extreme places than Cape Town, uh, for example, Antarctica and Ethiopia is now my candidate desert location. So the Dalol deserts in Ethiopia is the hottest on average place on Earth, and we'd also like to keep this a proudly African project as far as possible. Let's mm. call Antarctica part of South Africa because we just go down. Um, so, so then we keep it uh, proudly African. And yeah, Ethiopia is a, if, if you look for the Danical Depression, it's a very otherworldly uh, location where there's geothermal activity from underneath, sun from above, 50 plus degrees. Um, so this is a harsh environment uh, where people already live, by the way. So the Afar people who survive in this kind of harsh environment are a, a culture that we want to interact with and learn from in terms of developing technologies and to sustain ourselves in this kind of environment. So the idea is not to simulate Mars. Um, there, there are other examples of, of uh, research programs that do this. We want to really embrace the location where we are. So if we're in Antarctica, ice is abundant. Water is abundant, therefore, if you can melt it. So we need power. In winter, there's no sun, so we'll need wind turbines. We plan to stay there through the winter. We're not messing around. Um, I was there in summer, and it was above zero. I was hugely disappointed. <laughs> So back in winter when it's negative 70 and we can get serious. Um, and then this is a real approximation to the kinds of temperatures that we expect on Mars around negative 60, negative 70 is um, the average temperature on Mars. So if our plumbing systems, if our agri-systems, if our solar panels and wind turbines can withstand these kind of temperatures in Antarctica, that's a huge step forward for Mars. But the water is not scarce in Antarctica. So this is why we need to go to the desert to practice being water efficient. Um, 3D printing as much as we can in terms of habitat components or any other um, tools and supplies that we need from sand. That will be an ambition for the Ethiopian project, um, as well as trying to maximize our use of sunlight, of course, um, and yeah, keep that system as resource efficient as possible. The final leg of off-world, after we've done the coldest and most isolated place on Earth, Antarctica, the hottest on average place on Earth, the um, Ethiopian region, then under the water. So here we need to work on the pressurization of our habitat and the real confinement to within that habitat. So this is also an analog for perhaps what exploration missions on Europa, the moon of Jupiter might look like. So mm -hmm. Europa's got a, a icy mantle around it and underneath an ocean. So missions looking for life in this ocean may well involve a submersible uh, habitat. So once we've done that, we believe and iterated uh, all three locations several times. The data that mm -hmm. we've collected on the technology, the integration of the technologies, the teams and the integration of the teams with the technology, that's kind of um, uh, 
triple uh, inputs there, then we believe we'll have enough data to, to be a serious um, uh, advisor to what habitats on the moon, Mars and beyond should look like in terms of technology, in terms of resource efficiency, and importantly, in terms of the kind of teams um, and the interaction with each other and the technology. Mm. So that's the goal, and that's like a 10, 10 to 20 year program. So. <laughs> sure. That is so fascinating. I mean, when you talk minus 70 degrees, I'm thinking like when we had the cold front up here in Joburg and it was like minus one, I was like, oh my goodness, please, it's too cold. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, well, my Russian supervisor uh, back in my research said, there's no such thing as bad weather, there's only bad clothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's uh, really important. Don't forget uh, your, your winter clothing, yeah. <laughs> Another aspect why Antarctica is a great place to, to train for, for the experience of Mars is because people think that going to Mars is somehow similar to going to the space station mm. or even the Apollo mission. However, these missions are not really analogous because going to the space station, uh, it's a microgravity environment you're arriving in, outside is vacuum, yeah. um, everything very protocol-driven, very detail-oriented, and people train for years with tens of thousands of people even supporting their mission um, mm. before they go to the space station to perform some kind of experiment. Um, yeah. The moon thing was a flag-planting expedition, uh, arrive, put the flag, and come back. Going to Mars will be completely different and will require a completely different sets of skills and objectives, really. Um, we'll be subsistence farmers, let's say, in the beginning, um, setting up an agricultural system, i.e. we need power and water as well, uh, will be the main priority in order to, to survive there initially. Um, mm. So the kind of skills necessary for that, we can very well train here on Earth in places like Antarctica, where you cannot leave. So on Mars, you cannot evacuate within a couple of days, which is the case from the space station or even the moon, which is like three days away. On Mars, you will be, of course, there, and it's a six- to seven-month trip home. In Antarctica, you are also stuck there for seven to eight months during winter. So psychologically, as well as uh, environmentally, this is a great place to train. And uh, as South Africans, we, we should be proud of our um, being a signatory of the Antarctic Treaty since back in the 50s. So we yeah. have a long history of research and activity uh, on the continent of Antarctica. And yeah, it's just a quick uh, five-hour flight from Cape Town. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, summer. <laughs> and a six to seven-month trip to go and train, I guess. But um, I actually want to touch on the psychological part of of you know that of what you're doing. Um, there's a question from from one of our our listeners. Um, simple question, but actually a really powerful question, which is that how do you actually feel? about moving to another planet i mean yeah <laughs> i the thought to me makes me a little bit scared um you know it's like sure like it's such a big move how do you feel about actually deciding okay cool i want to go live on another planet well i think this decision or this uh, ambition is made easier by the fact that it's been in my mind a really long time so mm. When I first heard about the Mars One project, suddenly I had this memory of, of uh, when I was a child, I must have been six or something because I was riding those plastic motorbikes, which I guess you can't ride much over the age of six. And I imagined that there would be a radio announcement that there were volunteers necessary, one volunteer in fact, to get on a rocket that would go in one direction away from Earth in order to find a new place for humans to live. 
Um, and I imagine that, yeah, I would do this. I imagine that I might not find a planet that's suitable and then I would die on the rocket. Um, but if I did find a planet that was suitable, I would land on that planet and other humans would come and join me. So I do not have any idea where this came from, but uh, this has been in my mind for a while now, so 30 years. Um, so that uh, having that, that thought in your head for that long, I think lets you come become more familiar with the concept of actually doing that. So that yeah. was just the explanation of a child. Um, but now as an adult, you know, there's so many ways that I can motivate for why this would be an important move for society and how I would be uh, privileged to be the person to go and implement that. Um, and that's, you know, on the one level, we need to, we need to advance our perspective. Um, you know, staying on Earth, it, there is no indication that things are getting better. That's not to say we shouldn't have hope. However, I don't see an easy way off of the current trajectory that we are on. Um, mm. Population is increasing. Our technology is increasing. These are hand in hand. The technology almost enables the population to grow in some sense. These feed off each other. The more people we have, the more technology they want. You know, how many iPads does every person need type of thing. Yeah. Then the industry that's necessary for this technology is impacting the climate. Uh, and as the population keeps growing, technology keeps growing, the, cl the climate is impacted more. Never mind the climate, the species with whom we share this planet, um, the, the biosphere, the life support system from the bacteria through to the, the animals that we share the planet with, there's an extinction event going on, and that's caused by humans. So we're in, we're in a bit of a conundrum here. And uh, these were all true before the pandemic, by the way. Also, yes. we, we overdue for an asteroid impact, and we overdue for a solar storm, statistically mm -hmm. So there's a few reasons that uh, why we should be a bit nervous about our immediate future here on Earth. Before the pandemic, people, I think, like to forget about the crises that are just around the corner once we're through the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, which I'm sure we will be at some point. Um, we've got a whole bunch of other crises to deal with. So we need to get good at surviving in extreme conditions. We've got, uh, we've got too comfortable here on Earth um, in terms of being able to breathe the air and drink the water, which may no longer be the case if we continue to pollute the environment like we are. So there's a, a real urgency, I feel, to actually explore and become able to survive in extreme conditions, even for Earth, but also for Mars. But on the other hand, it's about advancing knowledge. It's about enabling the next generation to dream. It's about giving um, you know, children something positive to think about for the future. I think curiosity and exploration, um, curiosity-driven exploration, the advancement of human knowledge, the advancement of our understanding of our place in the solar system, our place in the universe. You know, These are beautiful aspirations that we cannot... Uh, we should not lose touch with, um, even though we're going through crises, set of crises here on Earth, we cannot lose touch with the sense that we are dreamers and we need to have these aspirations in order to move forward. Absolutely. That's that's incredible. That's incredibly, I think, an inspiring way to, to look at it, um, you know, which is that, you know, we, we, rapid, we actually need to rapidly um, develop in that space. And coming to coming to a topic which I am quite passionate about and I know that you're also passionate about as well um you know I, I want to talk I want to dive into our future in 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 science and technology in South Africa um and I know you you play quite a quite a big role in helping advise on that on on the sort of the way forward that we need to to take in that space um but firstly I I want to get your understanding. I know you're quite passionate about, you know, technology and science. I want to get your assessment of, you know, where do you think we are 
um, in South Africa in, in that space. Um, yeah, what is your assessment of where we're at at the moment? So let me spend maybe a shorter time saying how bad things are and then a, a longer time saying uh, how we're going to get ourselves out of this mess. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, our, our high school leavers are underprepared. You know, we ranked among the bottom um, in terms of countries' high school leavers preparedness in maths and science. And I just shudder to think of what the education shutdown this year, what kind of impact that's going to have. You know, there was a, um, a report that ranked us 144 out of 144 countries in terms of maths and science school leavers capabilities. So it's bad. Let's say we're at rock bottom now. That's not a bad place to be because you can still go up from there. <laughs> you can only go up from there. So yeah. how, how, how are we going to change this? And I'm, I'm not here to go on about uh, eradicating government corruption without which nothing is possible. Um, but let's assume that that will happen. Um, we have to have allocation of funds in the right places and, you know, the funding for the, for the COVID pandemic has not given us a good indication that funding can ever be put in the right place, but uh, let's assume that um, government corruption is eradicated to some extent. What can we do in terms of boosting education, you know, maths and science? We need to we need to boost capabilities in these areas. You know, something like 80% of jobs in the next 10 to 20 years will involve some kind of technical capability. This is a no-doubt no scenario. Maths and science and technical capabilities have to be taught more rigorously. But uh, how do we achieve that? And I think uh, inspiration then is the, the short answer. So how do we get kids to get excited about learning mathematical, coding, engineering, technical capabilities? Um, and I think solving the mess that adults have made of the world is not a great way to inspire people to go and study technical fields. I think we need something better than that. Um, tackling climate change, you know, eradicating pollution, getting rid of plastic. These are all negative things. Uh, yeah. how, can we, how can we inspire people to imagine that a better world is possible and that they're part of creating it? Um, I think space exploration is one, one of the ways um, in which to do this. So the Africa to Moon project um, is uh, uh, created to be Africa's actual first mission to the moon uh, in terms of putting up a radio telescope is the plan on the far side of the moon. So inspired by the Square Kilometer Array Radio Telescope project that we're hosting here in South Africa. Um, Carla Sharp, who is the founder and uh, the director with me at the at the Foundation for Space Development. This is her mm. passion project to put a radio telescope on the far side of the moon. So this is a, a scientific first um, in terms of the data that we'll be able to collect there. But uh, yeah, inspiring kids to reach for the moon by actually putting uh, some technology there. Um, mm. In terms of the, the Mars mission, I think at the Science Center, we again hope to inspire the kids who come and look at our display um, that it's, it's a tangible thing to go live on another planet because what, what, will, what kind of systems will you need? You'll need power, so solar panels or wind turbines, uh, mm. batteries you'll need, you'll need water. So importantly, how are you going to recycle your water? Because every drop is precious. So how are you going to cycle your water back with water management systems? Food, how are you going to grow your food in the most resource efficient way to produce the most nutrients? And your communication system, so what kind of antennas or, or data um, downlink and uplink facilities are you going to need to interact with the rest of the world, whatever planet you're on. Um, these are the basic challenges that can not only positively impact communities on Earth um, in terms of being more resource efficient than we've ever been able to be before, but just to inspire them that, you know, life is life. Um, whatever planet you're on, humans have the same needs. Uh, so I think putting a lot of our, our time and money and energy 
um, investing in these basic these basic provisions. So I think I think during the lockdown, everyone has been thought to go online magically, you know. But I think I'm not sure if this is correct, but I read 10% of, of South Africans have sort of access to to good stable Wi-Fi that can enable them to do as we do now by doing a video call. So the yeah. price of data, in terms of practical recommendations, the price of data has to has to fall. <laughs> the yeah. price of data has to fall. We cannot be expected to even think about participating in the so-called fourth industrial revolution unless we can get online in an affordable way. Yeah. Um, that's assuming the rest of the power, water and food are taken care of. Comms, price of comms has to go down. Yeah. And I think you, you've touched on something really important there, right? Because, you know, I think what the pandemic has actually done is it's, is it's I think, actually expedited the need um, for us to to rapidly improve in the space, um, and you know the stats that you that you're talking about. If I if I stand I stand to be corrected, but I, I read a report um, which was submitted to the Department of Basic Education that actually said you know what, fifty only fifty percent of households in South Africa have access to internet, um, stable internet, and that's not actually I'm not talking you know your Wi-Fi. The the Wi-Fi is the ten percent that you talk about, right? Um, so how do we actually now we actually talking you know the forty percent the rest of the of the fifty percent have access through through mobile data which is expensive right so you can't you can't actually educate people on mobile data because that's way too expensive that's not sustainable at this at this point um, so I actually think that in the current time we we have we're actually being shown where our pain our pain points are right where where our sh- our actual shortcomings are. Um, and I, it is, I think, absolutely critical um, that we rapidly get moving in, in this space. So I want to ask you, you know, where do you think our focus and attention um, should be to, to actually equip the youth with the necessary skills, um, both to deal with our present and the future world in South Africa? Um, and I suppose we can probably expand that to Africa as a whole. Um, because I think there's a certain element of we talk about the fourth industrial revolution like it's far away, but it's actually here, um, and we we probably need to make that realization, recognize you know recognize that it it is actually here, um, it's taking shape in many ways, shape or form. But where do you think our focus should be in order to equip our youth to be able to to deal with the present world? That's the inception of the fourth industrial revolution, as well as the future world. So, you know, what what does the economy look like in 20 years time or in 15 years time or 10 years time or five years time? Yeah, so I think um, it's a lot more complicated, but also a lot more simple, you know, depending on how you try and frame it. So I think in order to equip the youth, their curiosity needs to be encouraged, you know, in a nutshell. But there's some uh, premises that we need before we can encourage a child's curiosity. And that's to provide basic <laughs> requirements to, to, to have time to ask questions and not be just living hand to mouth all the time. So in terms of, and I keep saying this, but it's, it's really simple in that sense, power, water, food and communication systems, shelter then of course is another assumption. So I think towards this, we need to look at increasingly becoming more uh, sustainable locally in terms of communities. So why are we not having communities set up solar arrays um, to provide power for the whole community? Because as we realize building the cabin in the valley, 
solar power systems are expensive. There yes. seems to be a gap in terms of being able to put uh, two panels on your roof and charge your phone and your laptop uh, and whatever other small devices you have, or equipping your whole house with a hundred thousand rand uh, system. So, so because uh, we're not able to do cheap systems, people have got to get together, I think, and pool resources. Build a solar system, get your community off the grid in terms of power. Next, get your community off the grid in terms of water. Um, a single household can get a Jojo, a few households can share a couple of a few Jojos. Um, atmospheric water extraction devices exist. Um, these are actually not that expensive and fairly robust. Get off the grid in terms of water. Make sure that you've got your water supply sustainable in your community. So even if bad things happen nationally, you know you've got your power and your water as some kind of off-grid system. Food, local gardens, local vegetable and fruit provision and whatever else you can grow. We've got to get together and at least provide food for ourselves because the price of food is skyrocketing and uh, we enjoy a good climate here in South Africa. So I think once we've got those three categories covered locally by ourselves in a way that we can be sure we're resilient with, plus the data, which is a more tricky question to solve the cost of data because we can't really build our own communications antenna. We have to go through a network of antennas. That's the mm. kind of there where we need government. But I think for those first three, we don't necessarily need the cooperation of government to provide ourselves with power, water, and food. Um, yeah. Because the child growing up in a household where these three things are, are reliably uh, available, then the child may have time to, to read a book, even if they don't have data, and start to become curious about the world around them, um, have time to talk to, to parents where the family is well provided for in terms of food and water and, and uh, warmth and shelter. Uh, that's a very basic thing. So let's move on to actually contributing to this revolution of technology and so on that we are participating in. And then I think uh, we shouldn't uh, box the youth in. The youth are going to come up with solutions to our problems that we've created in ways that we can't even imagine. So we actually need to take a step back and say we don't have the answers. What we are going to encourage is a questioning mind. Um, yeah mind that questions what's going on, that says this is not the right way of doing it and finds a new way to do it. Um, what kind of skills does a person like this need? I would say it's actually simple, a curious mind is probably all that's necessary. And food in your belly and, wa and water and healthcare, <laughs> let's assume those are there. Then I think a curious mind is enough. Some coding capability will come naturally when a curious mind realizes that an app can be created to solve a certain problem that they see in their community, that a, a new type of rocket fuel can be developed, which is more efficient for launching CubeSats. You know, there's no limit to the capabilities of a curious mind. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we each need to to be be passionate about what we do. I think a lot of a lot of adults are, are guilty, or a lot of people thinking now about the youth are guilty of having um, trapped themselves in a life that they're not passionate about. Um, mm. And a lot of people have lost job opportunities or, or jobs or are in a precarious financial position. So that's, that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity to shift because the best example you can set for the next generation is to be passionate about what you are doing, to be passionate yeah. that there is hope, <laughs> that there is a, a trajectory towards a positive future that we're working towards. Um, and I think we owe it to, as I said, previous generations and upcoming generations to dedicate our time to things that we are passionate about, things that benefit ourselves and others and benefit the next generation. Yeah, yeah. I think you, you, you're talking about the fundamentals, right? Um, first addressing the fundamentals so that people people can actually be have the have the actual ability to 
do the things that you're saying, to read the book, to be inspired, to to be curious. But we need to actually address the fundamentals first before that. Um, and that that you've, I think, spoken to in, in, in great detail and, and in such a profound way. I want to ask you, so what do you think is the, the value of, of, of STEM education, um, so science, technology, engineering and mathematics um, in this approach? Um, so currently, I mean, to, to preface that, so currently our, our university graduation of, of STEM subjects in South Africa is, is around 20 percent. Um, and I, I suppose we, we probably do need to to begin to rectify that. Um, but what do you think is the value of STEM education, firstly, in, in, in this approach? Um, and also, what advice would you give to to young children um, who are looking to study further in STEM subjects as well? So let me start with science, where I have uh, the most uh, background. And you know, if you're introducing yourself at a at a party or something, and you say oh, I'm a I'm a physicist, you know, most people look, get a like shocked blank look on their face and quickly try and move and talk to someone else because I think they feel intimidated. So mm. I would like. First of all, to rectify this uh, image around science or maths, that it's something separate from humanity, <laughs> that it's yeah. some you know, thing on a hill that's like hard to achieve and most people don't get there. Not at all. You know, I think we all we all scientists by, by nature, you know, science is just the name given to asking questions and in detail trying to answer these questions. So science becomes tricky, I guess, because we're not looking at only what we've learned during our life, but for the past few decades or even hundreds of years, you know, others have also contributed to answering these questions. You know, everyone remembers from school the, the cannonball, uh, Newton, Newtonian physics examples. Um, this is obviously old knowledge that we have to first learn before we can contribute new knowledge. But let me say science is about asking questions. So for, for any young people who enjoy asking questions, there is an aspect of a scientist in you. Um, we have to get rid of the stigma around around doing science and maths and just say it's it's part of being human. It's about asking questions and trying to find answers to these to these questions. Um, for me, coding was actually a, a really interesting um, sort of breakthrough moment I had when I realized, you know, in maths it's difficult to be creative because there's kind of like normally one or maybe two quick ways of answering a question mathematically and correctly, whereas in coding there's so much creativity. So I think this is a great opportunity for people who maybe don't enjoy the rigor of maths and getting every every digit correct and so on. Coding is a great way to be creative and to try different approaches um, to, to solving problems in different ways. Um, so, so get out there, I would say to young people, try and design an app, try and design a, a little program that uh, helps you put uh, your emails in a certain folder or whatever it may be that you want to try and achieve. This is a great way to be creative, um, um, whether it's in your own life, whether it's developing apps for other people or designing websites, whatever it may be. There's a lot of creativity there, which is also a technical skill. So, yeah, I think... Um, the world we live in is increasingly technological, so whether we like it or not, um, you know, anyone who has a phone should recognize that they're enjoying the benefits of technology, so there's got to be some give and take. There should be some level of understanding of how this technology works if we're going to use it every day. We're in this world now, so we can't backtrack from that. I mean, part of me thinks it might be nice to live in a world without technology. We wouldn't have issues of pollution and climate change, and uh, we could go back to living peacefully. But we're not there. We're not there. We have the technology, so let's embrace it. Let's understand how it works. Let's understand how it can work for us. It's a tool. It's a tool to achieve certain goals, and whether we are coming at 
at things creatively from an art perspective or whether we're coming at it from a physics perspective, technology is there regardless. Graphic yeah. design all the way through to putting uh, people on Mars. Um, so let's embrace that there are plenty of ways in which to be creative with these things. Um, and uh, yeah, in order to participate, we're going to have to have some knowledge of the system that we rely on. Mm, mm. That's, I think, a really inspirational inspirational answer. And I think you're quite right. We, we do have to begin um, to embrace that and, and to take it forward. I, I want to also pick your brain on, you know, how how do you think we, with this approach, um, also address our unemployment problem? Um, and I think something which, you know, is is said within the stats, but is is probably not given its, its due attention um, nationally amongst amongst as a society is our youth unemployment as well, um, right? Specifically looking at the youth unemployment, how do you think this role could sort of play? What 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 role could sort of the STEM approach and the curious mind approach that you have defined? Um, what role do you think that could play in in addressing the youth unemployment problem that we currently have? Yeah, so that's a tough problem, and because I don't even have a simple answer to that, um, mm -hmm. I would bring up another. Uh, I was very excited to get invited to an event um, by The Economist, and as a, as a physicist, I thought this is the first economics kind of conference I'm going to. Um, I was a bit misguided on that, but anyway, so I get to this Economist <laughs> forum where there are all these CEOs on stage in this panel, and I hear them describing how difficult it is to, to do innovation within the corporate structures. Yeah. Um, how difficult it is to do new types of business, new types of business models, new types of products. It's difficult to innovate. Meanwhile, that's what we're supposed to be doing now is innovating. So I don't know if I explained that fully, but let me say what my response was. So I put up my hand and thought, I'm going to make an economics comment. And I said, you know, in physics, when it looks increasingly complex to justify the current paradigm, um, you know, before the sun was proposed as the center of the solar system, when the earth was proposed as the center, there were all of these complex evolutions of, of uh, other planets and stars that were proposed in order to, to describe the model. Now, the real answer to the complexity was that the model is wrong. When things become increasingly complex and difficult to, to achieve goals that seem logical, um, probably it means you need to reflect on the model itself. And so I challenge the panel to, to challenge the economic model and say, is not the economic model the central flaw of our system? And the reason why we are experiencing all these problems like unemployment, poverty, inequality, increasing inequality, lack of access to resources, lack of access to healthcare and education is not the center of this crisis, the flawed economic model, which is profit-driven, consumerist-driven, um, and assumes that there are infinite resources, because how can you have continued growth? How can you have continued consumption? How can you have continued profit when you live on a finite-sized finite planet? There's a ceiling. <laughs> There's a mm -hmm. limit. You can keep taking, taking, taking and assume that the system will remain stable. And I think we are there. We are at the limit. The limit of this consumerist system is now because we live on a, on a finite sized planet, which seemed big before, but now <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's enough to go around. And how can we have reached this point? So I think it's the economic model that's flawed. Um, I, think, uh, I think money is something that's... Uh, destroys our, our sense of clarity. You know, people are pursuing wealth and money when they should be pursuing other things. It's a big distraction. Um, you know, having uh, material ambitions, uh, 
to to get a new car, a new house, or something. These are not these are not going to make us happy. These are not going to solve the problems. So to get around your question about youth unemployment, I think the the economic model is something we need to revisit. And mm. I, I thought I thought I was very uh, controversial when I went to a crypt, uh, cryptocurrency conference in in Kenya. And then a higher a high ranking official vice president at the time went on stage and said something similar to what I thought would be very controversial for me to say. And he said, we need a tokenized cryptocurrency for Africa to exchange assets within Africa. Mm. So why are we pegging our currencies on, on the US dollar, for example? Why should we peg our currencies on our, our gold, which is now no longer ours? Yeah. Why why can't we develop a system whereby the resources that are from Africa can be distributed within Africa on a separate model? And I think this is something to be to be taken seriously, where we look at commodity exchange uh, based on a cryptocurrency that is a African or some local region cryptocurrency. Um, so this is potentially the, the future I see um, in terms of uh, a new economic model. And of course, that's like several PhDs um, of work still to do in terms of designing how that could look. Um, we have resources, we have sunlight, we have water, <laughs> we, yeah. we have you know, abundance in which to grow agricultural food and so on. You know, why is it that we have so many starving people? Um, mm. And things get easier as climate change, uh, you know, in increases in its impact on agriculture and communities. Um, mm. So we need to start sorting out these problems now. And, uh, you know, once you, if you have sunlight and water and seeds, as we will prove on Mars, this is the basic requirements to set up communities. So we need to go back, back to uh, the basics, but inspired by technology. Um, yeah. An example is like when, when you arrive in a, in a certain location, can you use the local resources to build everything you need? So that mm. means 3D printing housing from sand. This is possible. 3D mm. printing solar panels from sand. This is almost possible. Um, creating a water management system using microbes. This is already possible. Uh, mm. Having a system that provides food for a group of people. Uh, this is possible. So I think once we've ticked off these boxes, and this is obviously gainful employment for everybody contributing to this system, then does it matter if you're unemployed? If you mm. have uh, if you have shelter and uh, some uh, power and water and food, you know, then then you can start thinking about how you're going to contribute meaning meaningfully to society. Um, I think those basic requirements have to be have to be provided for before one can you know achieve one's life passion. Um, mm. uh, we're mm. going to need. A, there's so much to do. You know, I can't understand why there's unemployment because there's so much to do. There's so much to be done. So many jobs <laughs> in terms of tasks <laughs> that need to be done. I think yeah. it's just I think it's just initiating that, right? I, I think there there really is so much to be done, but we what we really need, I think, is 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 change agents and leaders who are going to take that forward. Um, and and I think what you are the 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 picture that you're painting, um, of of a world that is, dare I say, it, sustainable, right? Um, a world that is that is inclusive of everybody within it. And a world that, and in Africa, if we talk in, in Africa specifically, um, an Africa that supports each other, um, an Africa that is able to do business with each other, and an Africa that um, is able to 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 promote each other within itself as well. Um, and I think that's such a fascinating thought and such a fascinating way to to look at things. 
to to wrap up, I I want to ask you, you know, how do we sort of all link this to to the off-world project and and addressing sort of community needs? That dual approach that you that you well, I actually don't want to call it a dual approach. It's it's a multi multi-path approach actually, um, because even within within both sort of ecosystems, the Mars ecosystem and the the Earth ecosystem, there's so much to do, as you've rightly said. How do we link that? How do we go forward in in that way to address our community's needs whilst simultaneously pursuing a more sustainable life on another planet? So, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, um, we have to admit that most aspects of reality are completely beyond our control. People sanitize their hands and wear their mask and think now they're suddenly in control of, of their future. These are good things to do. Yeah. However, what this pandemic has uh, maybe brought to the forefront is that we cannot predict what would have happened in 2020. We are not in control of what has happened in 2020. So that's not a that's not a negative note. That's just a, an observation. What mm. can we control then? I think we, we can sometimes control ourselves and our minds. Um, so this is this is not my realization, but of course the sort of central um, tenets of, of the Buddhist philosophy is that the, the one area in which we do have some control is in our attitudes and our minds. So so let's start from there. And I think um, the word pride, you know, a sense of pride is, is a good starting point. You know, what what do you need to, to feel proud of where you've come from and where you're going? Let's let's take off all the basic resources, healthcare, shelter, etc., as we've talked about, to feel some minimal sense of pride. Once we feel some minimal sense of, of a sort of attitude of, of hope within ourselves and pride in where we where our, our forefathers and mothers have, have led us to, then how can we uh, inculcate a sense of pride in those around us and in future generations? And I think for each person, this will be something different. So for me, this uh, involves getting myself to Mars. Um, you know, I can explain it uh, in all sorts of different ways, but at the end of the day, I must admit, I don't really know where this comes from, but I know full-heartedly that this is what I need to do. This yeah. is my contribution. I need to get to Mars to demonstrate that it's possible and to inspire others that, that their dreams are achievable too. Um, so each person needs to have the space to, to be able to dream um, and to be able to feel a sense of pride in where they've come from and where they're going. And I think if we if we have increasing numbers of communities where there's a sense of pride, then these communities get together. Collaboration, you know, people think that life is based on competition. You know, we're told that evolution is about survival of the fittest. We're told that we compete for resources, we compete for profit. This is a, an illusion that we've been sold and we've bought it. This is, this is not the most fundamental uh, characteristic of reality, competition. No, 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 no. Collaboration is the most fundamental characteristic of life, um, whether mm. it's the bacteria that are in our stomach, whether it's all of the other organisms that we may or may not want to know about that co-inhabit our bodies, whether it's our parents that gave birth to us, whether it's our, our support network around us and the generations that come after us. There's no such thing as a single living system. It's all one big collaboration. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we can start having that mindset in our, in our daily activities and in our decade-long projects, we've mm. got to collaborate. We've got to have a positive impact not only on ourselves or our immediate families, but on the general broader community and, in fact, the whole planet, and perhaps two planets by the time I'm done <laughs> with things. It's yeah. got to be, it's a, I think, a sense of pride is what you need to focus on first within yourself, 
Um, secondly, a sense of collaboration with everybody around you. And then I think things fall into place um, at a dash of compassion, at a dash of kindness, at a dash of, uh, you know, strength. And uh, I think once you have that pride, that collaboration and those others, then I think we don't need to come up with a, a foolproof plan for the future. I think yeah. once we have those things in place, uh, we will move to a more positive trajectory. And and it's about building a resilient, that resilience, you know, on, on both planets as it were. I, Dr. Adrian and Maria, I just want to thank you so much. Firstly, um, I want to thank you for, for being, for being a shining light um, and being a leader within our society that um, constantly, I think, challenges us um, to think differently. I think, you know, don't, don't underestimate the impact of your story, one, and two, don't underestimate the impact of, of, you know the the example that you've set. Um, so I want to thank you for for being a, a shining light um, for us to to look up to and for us to to look to look to for inspiration. And secondly, I want to thank you for coming onto the show. Um, this has been, you know, th- this platform is is meant to primarily um, educate and inspire. And I think we've we've knocked that out the park over here. And I think anybody who who is listening to this and and has or watched this um, certainly feels emboldened, I think, and empowered um, to take on their world and to to be curious, as you as you said, to to actually change their world for the better and to find their greatness within that as well. So you know, as as we say goodbye to our, to our listeners, I, I just want to say thank you for 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 sparing of your time. Um, I'm sure you're an incredibly busy individual, but I'm I'm thrilled to have listened to you, to have learned from you, to have had this conversation. I would absolutely love to to have you back on the show sometime in the future. Um, I think we we we've touched on some some key topics, but there's so much that you know we we can talk about that I think would incredibly inspire and impact people. So thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. And I still had a few questions up my sleeve, given uh, your background and participation in the mining industry. So mm. we'll, have to, we'll have to save uh, the discussion on asteroid mining for for another occasion. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I look I look forward to that, and I think it's it's a it's a nice little prelude to 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 a part two that we'll do sometime in the future. But until then, um, as we say goodbye to the listeners, I hope that you take care, you you stay safe, you you wear a mask, sanitize, wash your hands keep two meters away and all of uh, the government regulations uh, for us to to deal with the coronavirus storm currently. Thanks, Tafadza. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the episode. I hope that you were impacted positively and that you found substance and significance whilst listening to the episode. Head over to the Impactful Conversations website at impactfulconversations.co.za to find out more about the show. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star rating. You can also check out and subscribe to my episodes in video format on the Impactful Conversations YouTube channel. Just head over to YouTube and search Impactful Conversations. Thank you to all who have listened in and subscribed. Why not share the episode with a family member or a friend who you think could be positively impacted? Anyway, until the next episode, 
Bye-bye. Stay safe, stay healthy, and wash your hands.